Father, I, I think 10,000 is too few. Lord, I, I, I don't know what eternity means. I have no concept of it. Just on and on. It's not really sufficient. I don't think I've ever counted past a hundred at any one time in my entire life. I think we'll be in numbers unexplored, giving you praise and glory and honor that's due your name in ways that we can't possibly understand now. But Lord, we can enter into it. We thank you and we praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ. The work that He accomplished on this earth, on the cross. And Lord, we thank You that, that even though He did die, Lord, He rose again from the dead and He lives that we might have life and He's coming back for us. We thank You, Father, for this. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please, uh, please be seated. Bill and Barbara were married in uh, 1936. And along with the, the china and the crystal and the other traditional wedding gifts, why, somebody gave them a waffle iron. Now, that's pretty trendy in 1936 to have, a, have an electric waffle iron, but that's what they did. And then Bill went off to war. And he fought all the way through Italy with the 10th Mountain Division. That's the division that my uh, nephew flew in with the six shooters. And uh, he ended up in the Dolomites. That's in, in Italian, it's the Prealpe, which is, means the, that which is before the Alps. He ended up actually just a few miles behind where we lived over there. Uh, when we were stationed in Aviano, Italy. He saved a man's life while he was in that area. And he earned a silver star and a bronze star. Bill had always been an athlete, uh, but it was recognized by his coaches that he was, he was smarter than he was fast. But nevertheless, after the war, he was offered the position to be the track coach at the University of Oregon. And during his time there, he coached, get this, 24 NCAA individual champions, 33 Olympians, 64 All-Americans. He coached men and women who had 22 world records and 25 U.S. records. And by all accounts, they loved him, eventually. <laughs> Bill is the man who came up with the synthetic tracks that we run on today. You know, back in the day, it was all cinder tracks. If you ran track in the, even all the way up into the 60s, you would have been running on cinder. And he came up with this new synthetic track. And the problem that he had was that track shoes designed to run on these cinder tracks had these big old spikes on them and just ripped this synthetic track to shreds, turned it into a, a, a real mess. And so he was trying to figure out how he could make a synthetic track that would withstand these cleats. And it consumed his mind. 
took over his brain, distracted him from everything else, including his wife. One day his wife pulled out the, that 1936 waffle iron because she wanted to cheer him up, made him some waffles. Here, honey, eat some breakfast. And uh, so, so he looked at these waffles... You know, back in 1936, you didn't have the two-sided waffles. One side was flat, and you had the waffle raised on the other side. And he was looking at that for a second, and then it, the, he kicked the table, and the floor, or the chair came out from behind him. He ran into the garage, and he came back with, with uh, this two-mixed polyurethane stuff, poured it into the waffle thing, and, and closed it up. And his wife wasn't very happy with this because once it cooled off, he couldn't open it back up. <laughs> so it was, it was absolutely ruined and she ended up throwing this, uh, throwing this thing away and, uh, he didn't put any spray on it or anything to keep it from sticking. Uh, but something was born that day. Does anybody know what it is? Nike. Nike, the company Nike was born that day where he decided that it wasn't the track he needed to fix, it was the shoes, and that was the perfect thing. He actually made a pair of shoes from a waffle iron. He went, oh, by the way, after that, he, you know, because he ruined it, he went into town, he bought all the waffle irons he could find, <laughs> and he sprayed this time, and he made this, and out of a parachute cloth, and this, he made track shoes that ended up uh, earning a uh, United States record called a moon shoes. You can look them up, moon, moon shoes. And so uh, everyone assumed that that original waffle iron was lost because, you know, hey, you throw something in the trash, right? It's gone. It's gone forever. Well, not in rural Oregon where they lived. It was actually in a pit in the back of the house. And so in 2010, one of the grandsons went out there and excavated this pit. And sure enough, there it was, along with about 30 pairs of shoes that he had tried to make that didn't work before he got them, got them to work. And uh, now it's in a glass case in Nike's headquarters. But Bill, uh, Bill was not interested in uh, power. He was not interested in politics. He was not interested in advertising. He only cared about one thing after that, shoes and shoe design. So after only a decade, he sold all his shares in Nike and focused on nothing but shoe design. So you say, okay, John, that's, that's a neat story about Nike. But what does Nike have to do with the Bible? What does it have to do with us here at First Colony Bible Chapel? Well, let me see if I can get there. First, in addition to Nike being the name of the goddess who helped Zeus overthrow the Titans, that's certainly not what we're talking about. But Nike, in addition to being a name of a goddess, is also a word. Just a regular word. Nike, it means something. I mean, the Titans and Zeus and all that, that has to do with Greek mythology, not biblical theology. But we're going to find out here in just a moment. Turn with me to 1 John 5, 1 through 5. 
The book of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle John tells us that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. One of John's favorite descriptions of believers, he uses this term overcomer. That's our word. Nike. Let Let me read this for you using English and Greek. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God, Nikes the world. And this is the Nike that has Niked the world, our faith. Who is it that Nikes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is Messiah? Now, I use the one word Nike. It's different forms, obviously, if you know anything about Greek, it has prefixes and suffixes and different changes, right? But that's our word, Nike. Victory, overcomer. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, we are here referred to as Nike. We are indomitable overcomers. And, of course, that's not in ourselves. That's through the power of Jesus Christ. And although... We are assured of ultimate victory. It's ours. It's ours already, even though we have not yet fully experienced it. And in that sense, we still lose some battles. There are some things where we do not overcome. And yet, John still refers to us as overcomers. Sometimes we succumb to Satan's temptations or the allurements of the world, or even the corruption or the deceit of our own hearts. So when we fail, does that mean somehow that we are no longer an overcomer? No, absolutely not. John has already covered this. Back in the first chapter, he wrote this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Of course, you can't make God a liar. I was mentioning in our college and beyond, did you know that there are some things that God can't do? (laughs) You thought God could do everything. That's not true. So what is it that God cannot do? One of them is He cannot lie. God, it is impossible for God to speak an untruth. It is impossible for him to think an untruth. Untruth lying does not reside in any way or form in God. So John is not saying, he's not talking about perfection. He's not saying that you have to be 
perfect in any way. What he is saying in this particular passage is that there are three characteristics that are common to those who are overcomers. Faith in the truth. We talked about a lot of this we framed last week. Love for God and others and obedience to the Word. So let's look at those for a couple of minutes. Number one, faith in the truth. That is found in verse 1 right there. The foundational mark of the character of an overcomer is one who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, we spoke of this last week. To believe in Jesus means to trust Him as God's Messiah, His anointed one. And what that means is to trust, place your confidence in Jesus of Nazareth as God's one and only begotten Son who died on the cross for our sin, who rose from the dead and is coming back for us. So Jesus is the Messiah. And so you not only have to believe that, you've got to believe something else that actually kind of predates that. And that is that you need a Savior to begin with. You have to understand that we are dead in trespasses and sin. And so it is that the Savior saves us from sin and the wrath of God. Now, if we were dead in trespasses and sin, we don't like to think of that. We think of that purely in, uh, as a, a metaphor. You know, our heart was deadened, our thoughts our conscience was kind of, uh, well, just weak in some ways. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that we were dead. We're not merely wounded. We're not barely alive. We're dead. And John tells us in the Gospel that the children of God are those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what's the lesson there? Here's the lesson, all right? Are you ready for this? We don't like it. Even, even having been a believer for the years that I have, I still don't like to hear it in this sense. I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> we did not cause... God did not look at you and say, Ooh, there's a worthy one. That one's special over there. I'm going to save that one because he's worthy. I'm going to save that one because... She's so talented. It's not the way God did it. It was the will, not uh, of the will of the flesh. It was not by blood. It was not the will of man. This was God's doing. And any good thing that we do, see, we tend to pat ourselves on on the back, but let me just say this. Any good thing that we do that has eternal value and has eternal merit we did not cause. It is a result of God having given us a new life. And because of that, we cannot lose what we did not gain. It's a wonderful thing. So simply put, John emphasizes the truth that those who believe in Jesus Christ have been born of God and by their birth, they are overcomers. You don't become an overcomer. You are an overcomer by the fact that Christ saved you. 
Verse 5, John says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We become victorious overcomers the moment of our salvation. And, and, but hear me, John, uh, he speaks in these extremes, but understand that it is possible that we will, not possible, it is, it will happen that we will experience times of doubt, that we will share with David the cry of his heart when he says, How long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Sometimes we go to these places. But true saving faith will never ultimately fail. Why? What I mentioned earlier, God cannot lie. It's impossible for Him to lie. And so what does He say? What does He say to us in another Scripture? He says, He who began a good work in you, will He will complete it. Um, during the journey, the Mayflower journey across the Atlantic, there was a young indentured servant, and his name was John Howland. And some of us in here are probably related to John. John couldn't take it under the deck. You know, he was going to... They were in the middle of a storm, and he was sick as a dog. So he goes up on the deck, hoping that that's going to help. Well, a big old wave catches the Mayflower, and off he goes to the side, hits the rail, and off he goes into the water. Now, that should have been the end of him. But being young and spry and healthy, <laughs> it turns out that the, uh, the halyard... we got some Navy folks in here. Is that the right way to say that? Where are you at, Mark? Halyard. Okay, that's it. Anyway, it had fallen down. It's a rope, I guess. It had fallen down and was dragging behind the ship. And so he sees this thing and he latches a hold of it. And when he, when he grabs a hold of it, he hydroplanes right down in first. Like he goes ten feet under and he didn't let it go. But all he could do was hang on to it. So he was able to porpoise back up and catch his breath a little bit. And, and then some of the sailors on the deck, one of them had seen him. And, uh, and so they gathered together and they pulled this thing in. And there he was, but they couldn't get him up. So they had a boat hook, right? So they took it and boat hook and they dragged him up and then they, they, they pulled him up on, onto the deck. Now everyone on that boat was a Puritan. So as far as everyone there was concerned, uh, the salvation of Howland occurred because God made it so. Now you may think the point of the illustration that I'm going to make is you need to hold on to the faith. It's not. I think we do need to hold on for sure, but that's not the point. Rather, the point is, is that with God, there is no shoulda, woulda, or coulda. Howland was saved because God wanted him saved. His life, that is. Do you think for one second that had he drowned, God would have let him go? No. God's holding on to us 
does not simply include this mortal breath that we breathe. It's for eternity. And that's what God does. Do you think for a second that physical breath or even physical health is the measure of God with us? It's not. And part of what John is wanting us to understand is that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of these things, that God is there. He finishes what He starts and He loves us dearly through belief in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He says, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and He will do this. Did Howland put the halyard in arm's length? Did Howland determine the length of his own arm? Did he determine the strength of his grip? Maybe a little bit. Did he allow someone on the deck to see him fall? Did he allow for several to join in? No, not at all. And yet, while we see that God's nature and character means that He will complete what He started, that doesn't mean that He doesn't want us to hold on. Let me tell you what it does mean. It means that our holding is not what saves us. It demonstrates who He is and who we are. So second, love for God and love for others. This is found in the second part. Everyone, uh, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So the primary mark of an overcomer involves believing the truth about the Messiah. The second mark is that overcomers love all who have been born of the Father. The new birth is what brings us into this new relationship with Him and also in this new relationship with others around the world, His children. And we talk about love and we've talked about it for a year I don't think I've ever, in any of my messages anyway, tried to determine what true love is not. But all you've got to do is look at a bunch of quotes. Some of them are uh, better than others, but, you know, uh, <laughs> William Goldman wrote this, True love is the best thing in the world, except for some nice cough drops. I mean, that's, that's pretty strange, right? Ann Landers wrote this, Love is a friendship that caught on fire. Okay? But how do you know the fires lasting are real? Fires, you know, can they can be put out? Helen Keller. This was a, a really nice one. Love is like a beautiful flower which I may not touch, but whose fragrance makes the garden a place of delight just the same. Much better, but now the metaphor is so thin. I mean, after all, I, what is it? What does true love smell like? I have no idea. 
A neuroscientist might say that it's an elevated activity in your neural networks that cause feelings of euphoria, strong motivation, and heightened energy that can induce sleeplessness and also loss of appetite and obsessive thinking about the one love. <laughs> okay, so love is strange, love's a fire, love's a fragrance, love's brain chemistry, not a whole lot of help. But God has a better answer. If you love the Father, you have love for His children. There's a story I read uh, recently that that expands on this notion here. It's by a fellow by the name of uh, Kim Duk Soo. So? It's Korean. I don't know. Don't know how to pronounce it. But on November the 20th, 1950, the communist troops came through his village and they were killing all the Christians. And so his father had been a pastor the same church for 40 years. And he told his son, we cannot lie in order to save our lives. We have to stay true to, to Christ and so Kim said that he, when he heard the soldiers coming, he knew he would be killed. He knew his father would be killed. They did run uh, into the backyard, into a cellar. They just chased him and, and, and got him there. And a, they put him in a little makeshift prison. They were to be executed the next morning. During the night, the senior guard of the night crew came to Kim, who was a young boy at that time, and he says, are you a Christian? And uh, he, he wanted to say no, you know, to try to gain life for a lie. But he remembered what his father had said to him. And he trusted in the Lord and he said, yes, he says, I'm a Christian. The guard drew very near to him and whispered to him, I, too, am a Christian. Before this war, I taught Sunday school. You must escape tonight, and I will help you. Kim fled with the help of this guard. He never saw his father again. He never saw the guard again. He reached an American army base and hung around. If you ever watch the episodes of MASH, they portray this quite regularly where you have these orphans just simply there doing what they can. What he could do, he had a musical ear. And so there was an old uh, piano that was hardly worth using at all, but he, he began to play it and taught himself how to play. Now there was a chaplain, Chaplain Shoemaker, and what he did was he said, I, you know what? I think we've got an organist for the chapel. And so he ordered a spinet organ, had it shipped over there, and young Kim has played this organ for decades on the base chapel. And uh, he, said, he said this, I should have been killed after the communists found me, but God sent that Christian guard to help me escape. And when I play the organ at church, 
I play for God. Isn't that something? I mean, he knows that, that people, he's playing for people, but that's not ultimately who he's playing for. He, he's playing his eyes to heaven. We don't know the guard's fate. We do know his father's fate. But we know they had a story, all of them. It's a story that demonstrates and teaches us that true love, now hear this, looks like obedience. It looks like action. It looks like doing something for someone, not simply an emotion. If that guard was working off emotions, he would in no way have let Kim go, knowing that his fate would be the same as Kim's father. D.L. Moody often said, Every Bible should be bound with shoe leather. Now, he was speaking metaphorically, but probably with a little bit of truth there as well. Love, true love, is demonstrated by what you do, not merely what you say. We show our love to God not by empty words, but by willing works. We are not slaves obeying a master. We are, and the only way to understand this is in a context of a family. We are children obeying our Father. So the primary mark, that's believing the truth about the Messiah. The second mark is that overcomers love all who are born of the Father. And finally we come to the third mark that characterizes an overcomer as one who is obedient. 1 John 5, 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. God does not want us to disobey Him, but... But neither does He want us to obey Him out of, out of fear, which is what our obedience looks like. We can't look into each other's hearts. We don't know why it is that we serve God. We don't know why it is that we walk with God. Sometimes it's simply fear. Sometimes it's a terror. And everything looks good from the outside, but the truth is, is that we're trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to make God proud of us. The truth is, God could not be prouder. He doesn't want us to obey Him for fear or necessity. He wants us to obey Him out of joy, out of a full recognition of who we are in Christ. It is a family matter. We are children loving and serving God and loving and serving others. We have been born of God. We love God. And because of that, we love God's children. If you don't love other believers, you don't love God. It's fairly simple. Because there's no way that I could tell that you love God. We, none of us can look into another's heart. But we can look at how we treat the believers. And we demonstrate this by keeping His commandments. So verse 3 specifies that those who truly 
obey God, don't find those, that obedience or those commandments to be burdensome. Uh, to the unsaved, uh, the will of God is a very strange notion. And the requirement for righteousness is foreign. It's hard. It's, it's difficult. It doesn't make any sense to them. And so consequently, the burdens are uh, difficult. I forget who said it. It doesn't matter. The truth of it is the same. Is that if you find something you love to do, you will never work a day in your life. It's, these are the way that the commandments of God are. If you love God and you serve God out of love, the things that He requires of us, loving justice and doing uh, or loving mercy and doing justice, these are easy things. They're not easy when our will tries to dominate the will of God. Or when our love, what we think of as love, tries to dominate the love of God or for God. And fellowship, in that sense, it gets broken. And so consequently, what seems to have been given to us for our good, what actually was given to us for our good, we view as something that is cruel and restrictive. The solution is that just simply loving God with our hearts. If we love God, then those commandments become easier. So it's not burdensome. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew eleven, He says, "My yoke is easy." My burden is light. We've been born of God, have within us a desire, a, a yearning for the, the Father. And that's part of that is by doing these things. Living the life of love, that becomes our uh, delight. And true love, right, it's not sentimentality. Uh, it's doing the right thing for the person loved. There was a very interesting study that was done in 2006 by the uh, American Society of Landscape Architects. Who knew such a thing existed? But apparently there's a whole society of these folks. And they did a very interesting experience. And so, uh, experiment. Uh, something, those of you who are parents, uh, just open your ears to this. They wanted to determine if a fence would have any difference on how children played in the playground. And so what they did was they had a playground with no fence. No fence is just field, playground, field. And they observed that the children stayed only on the slides or only on the bars or whatever it is that they had in that particular uh, playground with no, no fences. And they wouldn't go out. They wouldn't go beyond anything. They, just, they, they, they were left essentially in insecurity and fear. And then what they did was they experimented with where a fence should be. And you know, different places, of course, not the, same, not the same kids, right? The day that they had a fence around the playground, the kids were all over the place, everywhere, up to the fence. They felt secure. 
because the fence was there. They wanted freedom, but when they had complete freedom, all it brought was insecurity. When they had a fence, it brought complete freedom within that entire enclosure, whatever it was. And if we understand that the... Uh, well, let me read their overwhelming conclusion, right? Was that give, with a given limitation, children felt safer to explore a playground. With a boundary, in this case the fence, the children felt at ease and free to explore the entire space. God's Word is a boundary. God's Word is a boundary for us so that inside that boundary we are free. We're free to explore. We're free to run and move and live and have our being without insecurity. You know, we don't help people by removing the boundaries. We hurt them. We don't help people when we allow them to continue to get away with things that are that should be bounded. We don't help people. Let me give you just some possible thoughts. We don't help people when we buy alcohol for underage kids. We don't help people when we allow them to take advantage, full advantage over us. We don't help them when our boundaries become no boundaries at all. That is not helping. Some, that is not love. Love is establishing those boundaries to give them freedom to operate. We hurt them. So we have these three things. We have to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, love God and His people with all our hearts, and obey Christ. And isn't that really the summary of this entire series? Essentially, we began with love God, love one another. And after a year, here we are, love God, love one another, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that salvation, you have become an overcomer. One who Nikes. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That is our heritage. That is who we are. And that burden is light. Father, we are so deeply grateful to You. Words really can't express what Your Son did on the cross. Can't express, Lord, not simply what has been done for us, but what is being done for us at this moment and what will be in the eternal state. And Lord, it doesn't even matter what it is. The glories that we will see, the wonders that we will experience, the beauties that are there, all of these things pale to nothing 
contrasted with your presence, just simply being with you. We thank you. We look to that day when our trials and difficulties will be over. We will forever be with you. Thank you, Lord. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen.